This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. I just realized that the first letter of every line of this review <laughs> spells help me. <laughs> it seems like everyone's a critic these days, blessing the world with our slightest opinions, all on our own mini platforms. I'm Scott Janovitz. And I'm Greg Conley. We're the hosts of Citizen Critic, a new podcast where we critique the critics and review the reviews of your favorite movies, music, television, toasters, toiletries, and paint colors. Listen to Citizen Critic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Keener, joined by fellow editor Katie Lambert. Hello, Candace. Katie, I'm so glad you're here today because I've got a topic that's just a little bit creepy and I need a, a good friend to help guide me through the scary parts. I think I know where you're going with this. That's because today is the Winchester Mystery House. It is. And what a fabulous topic. And I must say that all of you who write to us requesting scary history stories and stories about ghosts, your emails and messages have not gone unheard. And today they shall be heeded because we're beginning a multi-part series on the ghosts of history. And I'm thrilled to start with the Winchester Mystery House. So tell us a little bit about Sarah Winchester. Sarah Winchester to whom most guides at the Winchester Mystery House today refer to as Mrs. Winchester, to show deference, was born Sarah Pardee in 1839 in New Haven, Connecticut. And she was vivacious, she was beautiful, everyone wanted to be around her, and she was pursued by many men in New Haven. And also, I should note, because this will be important later, she was a very petite woman, and she reached a height of 4 feet 10 inches. She's a tiny little thing, then. A tiny little thing. But she married a very well-to-do or soon well-to-do man named William Ward Winchester. And when I hear Winchester, because I am a Georgia girl, I think of guns. Winchester Arms became very famous during the time of the Civil War. And William Winchester bought into the company fairly early on. And he actually perfected a type of rifle that could be loaded and uh, fired very quickly. And, of course, during the time of the Civil War, the troops needed a gun that could do this on the battlefield. And so the government actually put in several orders for this repeating rifle, and private citizens wanted the gun, too. So it really took off, and the company became known as the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. And William Winchester became quite wealthy off of this venture. He really did. He really, really did. But as we all know, money can't buy happiness. And they actually met their share of tragedy as a young couple. They had a daughter named Annie who was born in 1866, but she died just a few months later. 
And Sarah Winchester understandably was heartbroken over the death of her daughter. And when her husband died in 1881, that was sort of the final blow to her psyche, I think. It really was. And as you can well imagine, the death of an infant would be hard enough to cope with. And then the death of her husband, who understandably was helping her cope with the death of her daughter, it was just the final blow for her. And she wasn't quite sure where to turn. And during the Victorian era, it wasn't unusual for people to seek the guidance of a spiritualist. Even Mary Todd Lincoln, as we've mentioned before in another podcast, would hold seances in the White House, some of which Lincoln reportedly attended after her son died. And she sought the help of the spiritualist, and she got a very direct and pointed message. And the message was that there were spirits who were very angry at the Winchester family and, in fact, may have taken the life of Sarah Winchester's husband and child. And in order to appease these spirits, she needed to go and do a little construction project of her own. And that's putting it mildly because what she engaged in was a 38-year-long, never-ending, 24 hours a day, seven days a week construction project. And... There's pretty different versions of the legend, and I think any time you talk about ghost stories, it's understood that people have different ways of telling the tale. And the version I'm going with that I've seen most commonly is that her husband's spirit led her out west, as far west as she could go, leaving behind the east coast and going to the west coast in San Jose, where she encountered a farmer who had a six-room farmhouse that he was willing to sell her on many, many, many acres of land, plenty of room to build. And with her husband's guidance, she settled on this place and she began this project that, um, like I said, spanned 38 years and almost outlasted an earthquake and really continued up until the day that she died. And actually, it was said that Sarah believed when the construction of the house finished, she would die, that she thought once everything was done, then she was done as well. And if you're wondering how she paid for all of this, it was with the Winchester money. I think rumor has it that she got, what, $20 And in addition to that amount, she had shares in the company, and her budget boiled down to something like $1,000 a day to live on. And if you want to account for inflation, you can multiply that number roughly by 20 to get an idea of how much that would have been to live on per day. So clearly she had a lot of financial means at her disposal to work with. And again, getting into the the nitty-gritty details of the legend, some sources say that she was under the impression that if she stopped building, she would die because the spirits would get her. And other sources say she was under the impression that if she continued to build, she could have everlasting life, essentially, as long as you build and you live. But she died, obviously, irregardless of, of the building project. And You may be wondering, how on earth could someone find enough home construction projects to last them 38 years? Well, we're not talking about just building some giant mansion on all of these acres. Her house is called the Mystery House for a reason. And if you go on a tour, you will see things like doors that open into walls, staircases that are nearly vertical, staircases that go straight up to the ceiling and then just stop. Some doors, when you open them, it's an immediate drop into the lawn, stories below. One closet door opens into a a drop that falls into a kitchen sink several stories below. Um, There's 
cupboards that have only an inch of room behind them. There's skylights that look up into skylights that look up into skylights. Uh, there's a back porch that's completely walled in. And it's just absurd, really, upon first glance to to take in this house. But, you know, to put it in perspective, to think about this woman and the messages that she was getting, you know, from the spiritualist's help that she sought, and also from, you know, her own stages of mourning. Well, I think when you are grieving over someone, people tend to want to do something, like to take a physical action. And Sarah Winchester took that to the extreme. She did get a little bit eccentric, but she just kept building and building and building and sometimes would just tear down a room that they had just built and start all over again. Like there wasn't a big plan. Right. There was, there was no uniformity to what she was doing and there are no blueprints or records that exist today. And according to some legends, she would tear off a sheet of butcher paper from the kitchen and she would go into her special seance room and she would consult with the spirits about what she was supposed to do the next day. And then that morning she would go and meet with her contractor and they would sit down together and go over her plans. And people aren't even entirely sure which rooms she actually lived in necessarily. Although there are teeny, teeny, tiny stairs all throughout the house and the places she frequented most often because she had horrible arthritis and she could only take these little like inch long steps. Yeah, I think they're, they're two inches tall and there's a, a blog essentially that's written by a former guide who worked at the mystery house. I think it's called mysteryhouseguide.com. And the former guide recounts experiences working there. And uh, according to a guide lingo, they're called easy risers. And apparently they're a little bit difficult to walk up and down. And I I know for me, I have really long legs. It is harder to take shorter steps than it is to take really big steps onto big stairs. And the big, substantial, well, really normal stairs that you see in the Winchester Mystery House are remnants from the old farmhouse that was there. And that's an explanation that some give to the staircase that leads to the ceiling, that that's the original part of the farmhouse, and she just built stuff right on top of it. I think that's the explanation from people who are trying to say, you know, she's not nuts. She had, there was some sort of rhyme and reason in her head, even if it wasn't something that makes sense to us anymore. And the contractor who worked with her, I don't know his name, I don't know that any records really exist uh, about who all did labor there. But it was, it was told that she was a generous woman who had lots of money and she wanted to help employ people. She wanted people to work for her and have a good place to work in. And so the servants who worked there were pretty content in what they did, but it was well understood that you didn't contradict her or you didn't ask questions why. For instance, she bought beautiful Tiffany glass and was going to have a stained glass window put in, but then she wanted a wall built directly behind it, obviously defeating the purpose of stained glass and the idea of sunlight coming streaming through. And for someone to talk back to her and say, you know what, no, I don't really see the vision you're going for, like a good contractor might, would be instantly squelched. You didn't talk back to Miss Winchester. She was paying you the big bucks. And in fact, she was giving people such good business that one rail line was even diverted to run closer to where she lived to bring in timber and other materials for her projects. I think her employees were pretty devoted, too. There's a legend of the basement ghost at the Winchester house. And guides and other people visiting would say that they met this man in the basement. He had on overalls. He had a wheelbarrow. What was he doing in the basement? And the people would always say, no no one's supposed to be in the basement. It's closed off. I don't know who that is. And finally, 
someone saw a picture, a very old picture of Mrs. Winchester and her employees and said, oh, that's him and pointed to it. And of course, it was a man who had been dead for quite a long time, who now supposedly haunts the house that was built to keep ghosts from haunting Mrs. Winchester. And that's uh, the really scary and creepy facet of this ghost story is that here's a woman who was working to appease ghosts, but was also likely very terrified of them. And so by building a labyrinth of a home, she thought she would trick them, trick them into not finding her, trick them into leaving her alone. And she thought that ghosts were afraid of mirrors too. So supposedly she only had two mirrors hanging in the whole 160 room house. So it's a strange case of wanting to appease the spirits by say, not hanging up mirrors and wanting to trick them. Some legends say that she slept in a different room in the house every night to keep the ghosts at bay. Other sources say, well, no, that's not really true because most of the rooms were so small, they wouldn't have been substantial enough for a master bedroom. Well, and that may have come back to haunt her, pun intended, during the San Jose earthquake, which actually trapped her in what's called the daisy bedroom for hours and hours and hours. And I'm not sure anyone knew where she was, and they didn't know how to get her out. So when you think of this eccentric, frightened woman in the middle of an earthquake who's also trapped in her labyrinthine house, I think you can see a little bit more about Sarah Winchester's life. Right. And the reason for some of the strange things that occur in this house could be easily explained by an elderly woman's fear, like clear glass bathroom doors. Perhaps she was so afraid of being caught in another room, she wanted to make sure people could see through and see her where she was. And for instance, the fact that one room has four fireplaces, what room needs four fireplaces? It was the only room in the house that could really get hot enough to help soothe her arthritis pains. And these are just some of the dangers that come along with being a recluse and building a very mysterious house. I think that even in her time, as well as today, people had trouble getting from room to room and floor to floor. Before the earthquake that you mentioned, Katie, there were actually seven stories to this house towers, flying buttresses. It was just a huge spectacle of Victorian excess, really. And after the earthquake, she was she was convinced that the forces were trying to tell her that something was at work. They were really concerned. She had almost finished the project. They were out to get her. So she shut that part of the house completely down. And part of it had crumbled in the midst of the disaster. So it had, you know, shut itself down too. But she thought that by completely closing out the ghosts, she could trap the men. But... Another disadvantage to being a recluse is that you don't get many visitors, and she missed a pretty important visitor, according to some sources. Teddy Roosevelt, to be exact, who supposedly wanted to pay her a call and made it known to city officials that he would like to visit Mrs. Winchester, and she was having none of it. He was on his grand tour of the West, and he had heard things about this house, as many people had, you know, contemporaries of Mrs. Winchester. And um, according to one of our office colleagues, Molly Edmonds, who's been on the tour not too long ago, one of the guides told her that he came to the front door to see her. And again, this may be the stuff of legend, but it's fun, so I'll tell you anyway. And Mrs. Winchester didn't like people coming to her front door. And apparently she she was thought to have exclaimed, who comes to a front door? Well, you know, I guess <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, call him crazy. But he was turned away and he never got to see Mrs. Winchester or her house. And as much as people may delight in the strangeness of the house and as many people as may poke fun at the strange things that this woman conceived of, 
it's very poignant to think about two quotations that are inscribed in the grand ballroom. And she kept no diary. She kept no records. We have anecdotal evidence from people who lived on the grounds or people who came into work, but we don't really know what she was thinking. And so uh, the the guides website that I mentioned before offers some analysis into these lines from Shakespeare, one of which is from Troilus and Cressida. And it's the line, part of a line really, that says, wide unclasp the tables of their thoughts. And it comes from a part in the play where Cressida is being berated for being uh, a little bit coy. But in the Victorian era, the play was rewritten to reflect that she was chaste and she was meant to be a heroine for having that very Victorian attribute. And this may have been a way that Mrs. Winchester conceived of herself as a chaste heroine who was doing right by her deceased husband and daughter and was going to be rewarded eventually. And then the other one is from Richard II, and it says, These same thoughts people this little world And this comes from a moment in the play where uh, the king has been dethroned and he's shut off into his own little microcosm of society, his own little world, and he's making it work for him. What works for him, the things that occupy his time and his mind, and that would have been the same for Mrs. Winchester, you know. If anyone understood one's own little world, I think it would be Sarah Winchester. Right. I mean, left alone to grieve the death of her daughter, the death of her husband, fearing day in and day out that she was going to be gotten by spirits who were killed by the rifle that her husband manufactured and made his mint off of. And people sometimes second-guess the fact that she threw so much money into this house that today would be valued around $5.5 million, but was such a disaster when she died that it was bought up for only $135,000. And what was she doing with the money? Well, who was she to hang on to it if it was got from a weapon that killed people during the Civil War. She didn't even mention it in her will. She mentioned the furniture, I think, and said that her niece, I believe, could take what she wanted and sell the rest. But the house was never even brought up at all. Not at all. And people knew it was sort of the the strange house on the block. And businessmen saw their opportunity to make it into a a tourist attraction. And in addition to being a a real tourist attraction, it was also pretty innovative. I mean, it was no Bill Gates smart house, but it supposedly had one of the first water, hot water heaters in the state of California. So that was pretty cool. It had a, you know, an elevator system and all sorts of interesting and novel ideas that she came up with with her contractor. And so eventually it, you know, evolved over time from this, strange tourist attraction that just had arrows painted on the floor to guide people through to, um, at one point it was a a wax museum. And today it's a veritable tourist attraction. It's a museum. You buy your ticket, I think maybe around what, $20. Is that right? Sounds about right. Sounds about right. (laughs) And then you, you walk through and you're taken on a very detailed and guided tour and, um, Again, I keep referring to this website because I just found it so helpful. The guide was explaining that if you want a good tour guide, and a good tour guide can make or break the tour, you need to go in the fall or the winter. Because in the summertime, there are so many people who flock to San Jose to the Mystery House that they hire a lot of students. And Molly Edmonds, our colleague, actually had a drama student who she said was wonderful. You can imagine how much fun it would be to have the drama kid from your high school taking you through this creepy haunted house. And that's the experience she had. So when you go, no matter what you marvel at, whether it's the stairs or the ghosts that may be lurking around, be sure to stop and and really think about the historical aspects of the house. 
how the money was acquired to build it, what the Victorian era did to influence Mrs. Winchester and her ideals. And I think you'll find that history will enrich any ghostly experience you have. And that's our philosophy, at least, because we're, you know, we're history nerds, but that's that. And if you want to learn more about the Winchester Mystery House, you can read Why Does the Winchester Mystery House Have Stairs Leading to Nowhere on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question, with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues, like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.